Welcome back to War Machine. A few days ago, we had a chance to speak with British anthropologist Tim Ingold, who is someone I really admire quite a bit, and I think you'll hear why in what follows. Preston was calling in and had some issues uh, there, and we, we lost the connection, unfortunately. But we were fortunate to have Matt Valor join us as well, which was great. It kept things lively and interesting, and it was uh, great great to have him with us. We haven't really talked about this on the show yet, but we're sort of pushing for more of an ensemble cast, uh, sort of a more multivocal uh, approach. So hopefully you'll be hearing some other voices in the future. And uh, of course, we, we hope Matt can come back too. So in the course of the conversation, we, we covered a fair bit of ground, I think. We talked about education during COVID, writing, uh, this idea of interfacing versus facing between, uh, which Tim will unpack, the downside of agency, animism, the imagination, the task of anthropology, and, and so on. I feel very fortunate to have had this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as well. We're on Facebook at War Machine Podcast, on Twitter at War Machine Pod. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. By the way, if you're using iTunes, give us a rating, uh, give us a review if you're so inclined. Uh, it helps us out. All right, here's Tim Ingold. Hey, Tim. Hello. Hello. How are you? Oh, okay. Uh, where where are you? By I mean, I'm I'm speaking here from Aberdeen, but where are you, sort of? Well, we're all we're all over. I'm in uh, beautiful and scenic New Jersey. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Matt Matt is over. The other Matt is over in Cornwall, and Preston is uh, in who's uh, calling in. We can't see him unfortunately, mm. but he's he's out in uh, Oregon. In Oregon. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're spread out. We're really mm. spread out, aren't we? Mm. Well, here it's um, it's pretty dark and drift at this time of year. It's uh, we get just a few hours of daylight, but it's been very grey. You go into a kind of tunnel at this time of year of darkness, but it's worth it for the summer. Uh, Tim, are you able to get out much these days, or you have to like mostly stay put? I mean, I we're not confined. We we can sort of go out into the countryside and that kind of thing, but um, but no, no serious traveling. No, yeah, and it's been like that since March, basically. I mean, for for personally, I it's been terrible for lots of people, but personally, it's not been a great problem because because I've just been able, I've got plenty to do, I've, and uh, I'm used to working from home anyway because I'm retired, and I, so I just um. Just buckled down and got on with things. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a lot written. It's been quite a productive time. And I don't miss all the traveling and all the stuff, except for traveling by train. I, I dream about getting on a train and, and watching the, the countryside roll by. Yeah, there seems to be, we could maybe talk about transport a little bit. That's something that you, <laughs> you write about. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're fortunate. I mean, compared, for, compared with most, I, I, mm -hmm. um, and you're able to stay in touch with family and yes, but only on Zoom. I mean, there, there are two things that um, 
I miss, we miss, because it's just my wife and I at home. We we miss contact with our, our children and grandchildren. Mm. And we miss going by train. But we have everything else. But the, the, the grandchildren is the biggest, biggest problem. I mean, that we, we can talk to them and have Zoom conversations and things with them, but it's not the same. It's not the same. Yeah, my, my dad is kind of bummed out. We'd take my son over there, spend uh, every t- every Tuesday. He would be over there and they're bummed out that he can't see him. Because my dad has some like serious uh, respiratory and health issues. Yeah, so he yeah. just so he's got to really, really take care. Mm. Yeah, he's he's batting down the hatches and, and mm. Mm. Oh, it is what it is. But that limitation of movement uh, to whatever degree we're experiencing, it has me thinking about uh, one of the connections that you make between movement and knowledge. Uh, or may, maybe it would be better to say um, of movement as as knowing. I'm still kind of working through that that differentiation mm. there, but I find this very interesting. I'm an instructional design student, so I'm, I'm I spend some time thinking about learning theory, and um, and I'm curious about uh, well, in the first place, how how this shift from transmission to reproduction, this understanding of movement as knowing, has informed your own uh, sort of pedagogy or, or your approach to learning. Uh, overall, if at all. And then if you've, if you've had any time to think about this, like during this time when we're uh, education is happening primarily through screens, you know, like, I mean, we've, we've always had screens of different kinds. Uh, there's always the, the screen of language, right? But you still had movement, and which seems very important for your understanding of knowledge. So I don't know, just any thoughts that you have on, on any of that? You asked, first of all, to what extent my thinking about knowing in movement has influenced my pedagogy, and it certainly has. I mean, let's say that the mainstream theory that we're all supposed to be applying as as university teachers, you know, is is that um, we are agents of knowledge transmission. So there's the authoritative knowledge, and they're the students who are nowadays regarded as customers who've paid large sums of money to go to a university in order to acquire this knowledge. uh, And our job is to transmit it to shift it from wherever it is into the student's head uh, as painlessly as and efficiently as possible. And that, that, that's what we're supposed to do. So, so in a way, the pedagogue becomes almost like a technician. I mean, he's like the one who's operating the controls of the PowerPoint, um, p- p- pressing the buttons so that the slides go up, so that the information is nicely and easily and in a friendly way transmitted into the, into the student's head. And, and, and that, to my mind, is is completely and utterly wrong. I mean, it, it's the model of so-called teaching and learning, and it came as a sort of a revelation to me that everything that I thought was serious about my educational practice was where it didn't fit within the teaching and learning paradigm, where it, where it just went beyond that or, or just didn't fit with it. So I tried in, in my own teaching, to some extent, to try and practice what I preach in that sense, that to, to try and find ways of teaching. Um, I did this in a course called uh, the four A's, Anthropology, Archaeology, Art and Architecture, that then became a basis of a book, which is called Making, um, where I talk about this. And it, it started because the students were saying, look, you're, t- you're telling us things about what anthropology has found out about how people actually learn in practice. But you're giving these lectures as though you really believe that knowledge is being transferred. So it was a challenge to me to try, how can I teach in a way that measures up to what anthropological studies of learning are telling us about how people actually come to know things? 
and I had to try and address that challenge and find other ways of doing it. But it's, it's kind of hard to do within the institutional constraints that we have within a university. And, and but I, I did try to do that. Um, hard to do because it, it does because it does presuppose a sort of a model of learning and and how as you say information is is transmitted mm. and and you know the classrooms are sort of even the material shape that they take are are designed uh, according yeah. to that according to that model and and I'm just curious about like the if you've had time to reflect on like additional challenges having to do with online learning like this, this mm. seems to just kind of intensify the issue even more right it, well it does and and um, because I've been thinking a bit about about screens and, and, and our addiction to screens at the moment and the fact that we spend uh, such a long time in front of them. I mean, unlike my, my colleagues who've had the terrible job of having to deliver all their courses online through screens, and it's been a challenge for them. And because I, I retired in 2018, so I don't have to be worrying about that uh, in practice. But I have been thinking a lot about the difference between handwriting and reading from a page as we used to do long ago and working through screens because um when you when you write by hand the what you're feeling flows directly into the page through the inflections of the letter line you're holding a pen and you're writing and 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 the very movements that your hand make leave their traces on the page and when somebody reads that page of handwriting, they're actually following along on the surface of the page. They're following the line on the surface of the page, a bit the same way as if you were listening to somebody singing a song, you would, you would kind of join in the melody and, and sing it along yourself or, or perhaps even join in. So it, it's a way in which your attention would be gripped by the surface where the writing actually is physically and follow that along. And the thing about the screen is that, is that it, it's supposed to be a window. I mean, we call it window, we have the, the trademark in you know, windows mm. and, and that little icon that comes up in, at least in the old things, which look like panes of glass. And, and we are told that what happens when we read on the screen is that we are looking through this pane which itself is completely featureless and homogeneous. I mean, the, the glass itself shouldn't have any bumps in it or any impurities, on the assumption that, that the meaning that we're looking for is coming from behind, a bit like looking in the mirror. You're looking in the mirror and you're thinking that, that actually what you're trying to see is, as it were, behind the glass coming out at you. And, and we're encouraged to think the same way about writing. So. So actually, there's a curious parallel between that way of reading and Renaissance perspective. The idea that you're actually seeing the world through a window and, and extracting the meanings that are coming from the other side. So it's a, it's a spectator view of writing, quite unlike the sort where you would actually read by by following on. I mean, the medieval monks used to read that way, that they would basically you know, be, be tracing the letters with their fingers like kids do sometimes when they're just learning to read, that they tra trace the patterns of the letters with their fingers and perform the sounds. And then the meaning would drop, fall out from the sounds as they, as they read. So it's, it, it really has changed the way we relate to the surface, I think, quite fundamentally. 
from thinking that actually the surface is where the writing is and to read is to engage in a quite tactile way with the surface of the page to a sense that no, even a page now, because we assimilate the page to the screen and we think even a page is like a window mm. that we're looking through and trying to find the meanings on the other side. It's, 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 it's behind, like on the other side of the mirror. It, it's behind the looking glass, so to speak, or behind the screen. And there was this change. I mean, uh, historians have dated this to between the 15th and the 17th centuries, um, the shift from reading aloud as you were reading or murmuring to silent reading and that this is linked to changes in writing in which there were very clear spaces between words so you can actually see the words on the page because they're they're clearly spaced out um, in in early manuscripts the words were all run into one another you couldn't actually see where one word ended and the next began but what you do is, is murmur the sounds of the words as you're reading letter by letter, and, and then you would hear the words falling out from the sounds. Mm. But you can't do that if you're silent. Um, I read this wonderful article where one suggestion for, for the, the reason for the introduction of silent reading was it all had to do with spying and diplomacy. That um, if you want to keep a secret, you don't want to... Uh, you, you don't want to read it out so everybody else can hear. So the great thing about breaking up words and putting a space in between and being able to read them quietly is that you could transmit messages to your spies and, and nobody would know what was in them because other people wouldn't hear. <laughs> so there was a, a sort of political um, reason for, for this innovation. But but so nowadays, yes, we we assume that that reading is a silent activity, um, which would have felt very odd to people in the Middle Ages. I wanted to ask you, Tim, about the, the um, screen as an interface, as well as this kind mm. of uh, site of signs that is sort of part window, part surface. Uh, you, you've written a lot about, for example, the weather as mm. a kind of, uh, you know, it's not just uh, nothingness, but the, the, the weather, the air, the weather that we're part of is is actually a kind of um, it's right there around us. And it's an interface that our being moves mm. through. Um, mm. And I was thinking about that in terms of, you know, now we relate so much over the screen and that mm. the screen becomes an interface. Uh, but it's a very different type of interface. It's, it's a quite How different. I've made a distinction somewhere between an interface and a face between. And the thing about an interface, so technically, I mean, you would know as designers that that an, that an interface is a, a two-sided surface, which both separates what is on one side from what is on the other, but at the same time allows transmission from one to the other. So I can't see all the works that are inside my computer. I'm sitting on the outside of it. There's all kinds of stuff on the inside, which I know nothing about, but I've got these keys which allow me to um, communicate across what we now call the, the, uh, the user interface. So, so we've got this model, right, of a two-sided surface. So here's a piece of paper, the top side, the bottom side, and then the, some buttons or keys or something that allow one to transmit in a unilateral direction from one down um, to the other. But if you were to take the pages of a book 
it's quite different. If I just pick up anything at random here, you know, here's a here's a here's a book, and 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 you turn the pages, and to get from one side of the page to the other, you have to turn it over. You don't go through. So a a, a page has a recto and a verso. It has one side and it has another side, but like Janus, their faces are are facing in in reverse directions. So you don't go through the page, in a, in a, that's in a classical book, you don't go through the page, you turn it. And what's really interesting is that is that, that of course is the model also for face-to-face -face communication in society where the face is actually the real human face, right? So you have two people talking to one another, we say they're face-to-face, uh, but here, that is one face facing another, which is the opposite of the interface, where you have one surface and and stuff going through. Because the thing about a face is that nothing goes through, and there's no the face has no the face is a surface that has no back, right? There's no such thing as the back of the face. And a page in a book also it has a reverse, but it doesn't have a back. But the interface on a computer has a top side and and an underside. And, and what, what's happened, I think, is, is there has been a movement with technology, with modernity, with all sorts of things happening, um, from thinking in terms of the face between, what I mean, when we have one face facing another face, to the interface as we have it now. I think that also has implications for the way in which we relate to one another in, in social life. This discussion of the interface seems to get into a question, and I think Matt will have some things maybe to, to say about this, too, of, of uh, mediation, right? It raises some interesting, not just in a purely technological sense, but it raises some interesting ontological questions. And I, I there's been a lot of discussion and conversations I've been having recently about networks and hybrids. Or um, the other day I was in a part of a seminar that was talking about uh, Haraway's uh, notion of the cyborg. And, you know, I think these are all very helpful ontological advancements as far as they go, right? They can help us to sort of like traverse or complicate different kinds of dualisms, you know, nature, culture, organism, machine, and so on. Um, but they nonetheless retain, I think this maybe gets to one of the things you were implying in what you're saying, they, they retain this structure. These are like sophisticated ways of talking about combination. Um, but in a way that, in the end, submits to the subject-object split. Um, yeah, it does in the end. Mm. Yeah, which you say, you know, this logic of inversion has to be in itself be inverted, right? right. Which, re which reminds me of like, a, it's like the, the Hegelian move, right? You have to like negate the negation. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, like that. Yeah. obviously different, different context. But anyway, mm. so you get this like distributed agency. But as I take it, you don't, you don't want to talk about things as having agency exactly and maybe no. <laughs> can you say hate, can you say I, more I, about I, that i really uh, i really dislike the concept of of, of agency and it, it's been terribly overdone and i think it's got in the way of a lot of things so what, what i really want to do is to move from nouns to verbs i want to think of everything in the first place as a verb it, it it's a doing something in the world whatever it does and different things do different things, but 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 um, if we start from that assumption, a thing a thing is what it what it does in the world, 
And then if you start from the primacy of that doing, of that acting, then you can talk about action. And I have no problem in talking about action, acting, things acting. What I don't like is that as soon as you invoke the concept, you turn act, the word act, into action and then into agency. As soon as you do that, then it makes it look as that whatever is going on is a result of the agency that something has. And, and then actually the argument comes completely circular. Um, to say that an object, as many people do, to say that a particular object has agency is no more than to say, well, actually this object exists in the world. I mean, you might say that, that if I, here, here, here I have a glass of water and um, now I put it down, now I don't have a glass of water. Okay, and the situation without a glass of water is not the same as the situation when I have a glass of water because here I can have a drink. If I put it down and no glass, I can't have a drink. And, and therefore, the, the, by, by its presence, because it's there, that glass of water has certain effects in the world. But to say that the, those effects are the result of the agency of the glass of water is completely circular because the effects of something being in the world is simply another way of saying, well, that, the, that, that, that's what it means for that thing to exist. It's a bit the same sort of circularity that you got in the old days of functionalism. You know, that, and, and a lot of them, like, like Karen Barad, for example, has been going on about, no, you, we shouldn't say that something possesses agency, that the agency is actually, actually there in the action of the thing, which I say, well, why the hell bother with agency then? I mean, it just adds uh, a lot of verbal convolution, which is completely unnecessary. I just think that, that turning goings-on into abstract, hyper-abstract nouns just creates problems of our own making, which aren't really there at all. They're, they're, they're imaginary problems that, that come from the, the way we're twisting, twisting things. So I think, I think we can do without agency. And that's a, it's such a silly idea. So, yeah. <laughs> And, and it's a bit the same with distributed agency. I, I quite like the way, in fact, I very much like the way that Erin Manning has written about this. I mean, she puts it like this, that it's not a question of, I did that. It's a question of, was that me? Um, so things happen. And then maybe you tell a story about what happened later on to somebody else in which the story says, I did such and such. But in the in the unfolding of the action itself, when you're right inside it, you're at the very moment of acting, you're thinking, you, you, you might say, oh, I wrote this article. Well then, put yourself in the picture when you're actually writing this article. And, and, and it's not as though here you are and you're just writing it and that's it. You're, you're inside this process and when you finished it, you, you think, God, how did I manage to write that? And and you just and you find too that that somehow in the writing of it, you've become a different person. You're not the same as you were when you started. So so the writing process is something that is generative of yourself. And then when you attribute that to your agency, it's 
it's a cart before the horse thing. You're 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 in the in the subsequent narrative when you tell people about what you did. I wrote this article. You're turning the I that actually emerged through and in the writing process into an agent with the, with their right in the right at the front, which then gave rise to the process. So it's a it's a classic example of of um, yeah of putting the cart before the horse. Matt, I know you got something to say about that. Yeah, well, I mean, the 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 thing it immediately made me think of was um, well several things, but the the main one was. Uh, uh, you wrote that that essay in um, Being Alive, The Ant and the Spider, uh, mm. which I, I really enjoyed. Um, I think if I've understood that right, that, you know, when you're taking a, you sort of, it, it's slightly tongue in cheek, right? You're taking a-, a pot- More than tongue in cheek, yeah. I wrote it as a joke. <laughs> at, at, at the ant, uh, which, which is actor network theory, which kind of has mm. this sense of the agency of objects. And so the spider- I think, is it skilled practice involves ah. developmentally embedded responsiveness? Is that right? That's it. That's it. Yeah. I was trying okay, to remember myself. Yeah. That's uh, it. I'm skilled practice involves developmentally, developmentally embodied. I think it was embodied responsiveness. Yes, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. So it, is that, because I was thinking about what you're saying about writing and that you're, you're like, did I do that? And I definitely resonate with that experience. Hmm. Is that part for, for you? Is that um, a, a kind of key idea about the, this sort of developmentally em, embodied? This is like a practice. This is a thing that you do. And because you do it, then you can actually have an experience where you say, oh, is that me? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly um, because I, I, I wanted to show that I mean, the Latourian view is that, OK, we, we, we shouldn't concentrate agency in sort of one one person, one human being, it's distributed around everything in the network. And, and I thought, well, no, actually, um, that just distributing agency doesn't deal with the problem. The problem is with, with agency itself and whether that's the right way to talk about how things are happening. Uh, I did want to argue that, well, it, it's linked up to the network versus meshwork thing because I wanted to show that actually we have to think about the all the participants in this process, not as points that are connected up, but as lines of movement in themselves that are then getting tangled up in different kinds of ways, and that's what we're it's, it's the tangle that we're really interested in. But there's one in in that spider thing. The one word that I'm no longer happy with, because I wrote this quite a long time ago, is embodied. I think it's it's developmentally embodied responsiveness. I really developed quite serious reservations about the idea of embodiment. Um, I think it's bodily, yes. I mean, that, that, that we can say that that uh, skilled practice is a bodily practice because bodies practice it. That's obvious. But to say that it's embodied is another thing altogether, because it suggests somehow that it is sedimented inside this body. And in being sedimented inside, it's mm. lost its movement, it's been stilled. And I think that is that that I think is a mistake. And I, I probably wouldn't have put in the embodied if I was writing it now. Related to the question of embodiment and, and what we've been already talking about, this seems to get into somewhat of a question of animism which mm. is something that has come up, you know, fairly regularly on the show, which I've been kind of surprised about. We've been dancing around it a little bit. It's, and, and frankly, it's a question we're still kind of sorting through. Um, I don't really claim to understand it 
entirely, but I think we have this kind of intuition that it's a kind of an, an opening onto another way of being in the world, another way of inhabiting the world that is important for different kinds of reasons, maybe ecological or, or uh, existential kinds of reasons mm-hmm. or whatever. But yeah, can you help us to understand this a, a little bit better? Like what what do people yes. get wrong about animism? What is it? Is this is this just reducible to a to a process ontology? Or, or, or is there some some other uh, detail or nuance? It's, it's, it's definitely it's definitely an ontology of sorts, a practical ontology, and and it has a long history in anthropology. So so clearly, what people got wrong about animism, if one goes back in the history of anthropology, is that they uh, is it, it goes back to the nineteenth century, where where it was uh, understood that 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 animism means a belief that all sorts of objects, animals have souls. People were supposed to have a mistaken belief that inanimate objects or non-human animals possessed souls, and um, that was it. What, what, what's happened over the last two or three decades, I think, is an understanding that um, that really animism has got nothing to do with belief. It's not about anything about what people believe. And it's not really about souls either, as we would normally expect, understand them as a, as a Christian, Judeo-Christian might think of a soul as some kind of inner, inner principle. We have to think of the soul quite differently, but it's very, very close to vitalism. Um, if you were to, to read, I mean, I read Bergson in the early 1980s and it completely blew my mind. And I still go back to Bergson. It's just fabulous. And and Bergsonism is pretty close to to animism, really. And and the key to it is this notion of vitality, because animism means that something is alive somewhere. That's where the word comes from. And the animus, the breath, the life. And the question is, what is this life? And where is it? Where do you look to find it? And and obviously, the first thing is this life is not some little internal property that you find inside living creatures and you wouldn't find inside non-living creatures. I mean, in its productionist sense, that takes you to DNA. So you get all the the microbiologists who say, oh, life, um, that means bits of DNA that are capable of self-replicating in a cellular context. So they, they would put life sort of inside the organism, this kind of thing. That's not what we mean at all. Um, And I think anthropologists are still getting mixed up about this because they're still thinking often of the animate in animism as being some kind of interior principle. What we're talking about life or, or, or what we're calling life is the unfolding process wherein beings of all sorts come into being and are held in place. It's a dynamic field of forces and energies, of flows, within which things of different kinds emerge. And even the soul, you know, that that people who anthropologists call animists, you know, they, they often do have ideas about the soul. But when you look closely what they mean by a soul, as, and Michel Serres has put this very beautifully, what they're meaning by it is a vortex, a vortex. So it, it's not some sort of inside thing. It's a winding up 
of the whole field of relations in which you find yourself gets kind of wound up so that a living a particular person is an eddy where the flow has somehow got um it's been going along so it turned in on itself uh, and that turning in on itself where the the whole movement gets wound up into the core of a living being that is the soul and when you lose your soul it's not like this bit oh you lost it somewhere you've got to go and find it it's that you've it, it is dissolved back into the flow so there's this fascinating thing that about life and death that for many so-called animistic people actually when you die you rejoin life and what, what what happens is that is that a living being is is kind of like a like an eddy the the movement is is pulled aside from them the living being is 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 holding up against the flow of life and it takes a lot of energy to keep this thing together it's like it's like if you imagine you're in a you're in a powerful river you know and 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 you're trying to keep some hold something together and prevent it from being washed away it takes a lot of energy a lot of work and 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 then gradually as a person ages they they lose that energy they don't have enough power and then they die which means that basically they can't hold out against the current of life anymore and it's quite a beautiful idea really and and but that's that's rather central to an animist way of thinking so i wouldn't want to think of it as some sort of curious exotic odd other cultural way of understanding life i'd like to think of it and and my colleagues too as a as a very coherent ontology but also one that you kind of work out as you go along and 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 one of the troubles with putting ism after anything like animism like buddhism or or something like that it makes it sound as though it's all worked out that it's a system and that's the one thing it isn't one of the remarkable things about people who live by this ontology is that they don't know they're they're somewhat at the mercy of things they can disagree with one another about meanings of words or invent words as they go along and there's this this and and there's a persistent sense of actually of anxiety and insecurity i mean actually it it's not an easy kind of life because the the ground you tread is always uncertain you you never quite know what's going to happen and 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 so you have to pay a lot of attention to things the the idea that it's not that animism is not an enclosed system or a, 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 a set of beliefs or an ideology or something like that is very reassuring as someone who is as I say intuiting that there's something here mm. but sort of you know still sorting mm. it out. But I I hear what you're saying about it's not uh, there's not some additional thing that's no. needed to get animism. There's no supplement needed. Um, no. It's just in a way it's just life as such. It is it is life as such and and. And, and the other thing is that that for most people who are supposed to be animists, they're, they're kind of part-time animists. So in, in in ordinary life, people go about their business just like anybody else. Um, it's something like an undercurrent, which is then exposed in some sorts of situations. I thought the analogy is, if you if you're out walking in the hills, and you think you know your way, and then you suddenly find you're lost. You suddenly realize actually you know this landscape around me is 
is not what I expected and I don't actually know where I am. And you know what that feels like, the sense that actually the ground, you start walking a bit more cautiously and you become, you're suddenly much more attentive to everything around you and a little bit worried and a little bit, maybe a little bit scared because you don't know quite where you are, what's going to happen. Then there's that sort of uncertainty of not having a firm ground to stand on comes up and it induces a different state of being. And that really is what it's about. Matt was one of our previous guests on the podcast, actually. And so um, we were talking a little bit about one of his projects, the Labyrinth Project. Does this have resonance for you in any way? It absolutely does. Uh, and um, I you know, thought a lot about the idea of uh, meshwork and place as part of this project, which is really about helping people read their physical environment in a different kind of way. Mm. Um, the reason it's called Labyrinth is basically a, a development of the kind of medieval labyrinth in a cathedral, yeah. but taken mm. out to a, a much larger environment. And the idea mm. that you have to be disorientated and hit a dead end. And in the dead end, you find is the moment of anxiety where you have to kind of um, encounter, a, I suppose, a sort of existential question like you're describing there, that the experience of being in a place uh, is suddenly... Um, you're suddenly lost, even perhaps in a place that that might feel familiar. Yeah. Um, no. I, mean, I, I wondered the extent to which animism is a practice for you, particularly as someone who, you know, th thinks everything in terms of practice. Uh, <laughs> it, because it, it seemed like what you described was almost more a kind of um, psychological disposition towards the world. But I mean, is there a practice for you that is an animist practice? Not, not really. I, I wouldn't put it, say, psychological. Maybe, I don't know what's the right word for it. It's it, As you mentioned earlier, the, the, the key to it is, is attentiveness. And I think maybe, maybe it's, it's, if I'm just sort of doing my thing, I don't know, <laughs> sort of in one's daily life, I, I don't think, um, I, I wouldn't say that it's, it's there, but, but it, it's something to do with the way of thinking. Um, for me, if if I was a hunter, it would be to do with the way of hunting, but I'm not a hunter. Um, if I was a musician, well, I am a musician, and so maybe it comes out a bit in, in playing. Um, but so it depends on what you're doing. But since what I'm doing is most of the time thinking and writing, it, 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 it comes out there in, in thinking as a practice. And what I'm trying to practice in my thinking I think I am doing this, is, is a way of thinking with things, a way of, of incorporating the things, just perfectly ordinary, mundane things that you encounter on a walk or, or looking around into one's thinking about life. Some people say that's poetic. I, I don't think it's a bit silly to call that poet, but well, maybe it is, but... but um, one way in which I put it recently is, is to say that it's not about taking literal truths metaphorically, but about taking metaphorical truths literally. And that is that, that you, you find um, a, a parallel, you find an analogy, you find a metaphor between one thing and another. And in, in that, you find, if you explore, some more fundamental truth. And that's the opposite of the usual mode of the theorist you know which is to to wander off up into high levels of 
theory using all kinds of abstract language that has completely lost its con contact with the reality they're supposed to be talking about. Yes, I am trying to practice it in finding a, an alternative form of, of scholarly writing because I'm very, very frustrated with the dominant form. Say more about that. What is it that frustrates you? It is so disconnected from what it claims to be writing about. Mm -hmm. um, I've decided that, uh, that academics really hate words. Um, and that, that, that can be the only explanation why they write so badly is because they really hate words and, and they use horrible words where perfectly nice words exist. And, and because they got it into their heads that there is a fundamental disconnect between logos, between the realm of words and the realm of experience. And that's why when they bang on all the time about embodied experience, they keep saying that that is nonverbal. And I say that's ridiculous. You know, when we talk, isn't that a bodily process? Don't, don't the words well up on our mouths and our gestures in our hands? So words as we use them, that are very close to our being, are simply part of the way in which we, we meaning our bodies and ourselves, make our presence felt in the world. But your academic writer will have none of that. So they have to try and find words that are as disconnected as possible from experience. And then having done that, they blame the words themselves for having lost contact with experience. That's pretty hysterical. Yeah, I think there may be some truth to that, right? It's making me think this, um... Because, yeah, you do hear a lot of this talk about embodiment, um, which could be perhaps understood as a way of talking um, about, in, in a very abstract way, about that's, that's mater 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 material, but it becomes materiality. Like it's this yeah. sort of, again, yeah. it's like this otherworldly. Um, uh, I can just give you one example. How, how often have you heard somebody going on about how things in the world are, are fundamentally imbricated with one another? Um, it's one of their favorite words. Everything is imbricated with everything else. And you think, well, what does imbrication mean? Well, it actually, when you're, if you're a roof layer, um, you're laying a roof, um, what, what imbrication means is the way the tiles on the roof uh, overlap one another. And, and you say, well, how many of these theorists who go on about imbrication know that? They've completely forgotten about, about the roof. And actually, if, if, if you thought about laying tiles on a roof carefully, um, that might give you some ideas, but but you take these words, or, or my pet hate is people who use the word utilize when they mean use. And you think, what's the difference between utilize and use? You To use something is to bring it into your custom. Uh, it's usual. It's, it's something that's part of who you are. I, I use this pen because I'm very close to it. Uh, they're, they're things that are like the clothes you wear. They're, they're, they're part of who you are. Um, they're, they're drawn into your custom, into your practice. You utilize something, and it's like saying, I don't want to have any contact with that, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it as far away from myself as possible. I shall simply treat it as a utility, um, something that's almost commodified, so that I should, have no, I should have no personal biographical 
uh, or affective involvement with it at all. And, and you just find that academic language is completely suffused with these kinds of ways of using words that implicitly or explicitly try to set the verbal discourse apart from the experience on which it reports. So it's a kind of remnant of the old idea of academic objectivity. And all these philosophers who are banging on about how we need got to get, get beyond object, you know, subject, object, dichotomies, whatever, they're still churning out this kind of stuff, which, which rests on the assumption of the um, academic academician as somebody who um, is of a higher intellectual uh, standing than, than the ordinary folk um, who need to have things explained to them. As a former roofer, um, <laughs> and, and so you as, know all about imbrication. <laughs> and as someone who uses from time to time the word imbrication, I'm very offended by everything you just said. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I thought this idea of, of thinking the metaphor literally and the and taking the literal metaphor, this this sort of complication is very interesting to me. And it seems to get to the, the importance of imagination. It seems to be something that's kind of in the background of what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. uh, and and you, you wrote it, this essay a, a while back called Dreaming of Dragons, which has been really important for me personally. And it's such a, such a rich essay that I, I wouldn't try to risk summarizing it, what you're, what you're doing there. Because I, frankly, I don't purport to understand all, all of it. I, I keep, in fact, I keep reading it. I keep rereading it. Um, but there are themes in that which carry over, I think, and, and overlap or are imbricated <laughs> with much of your other writing, um, putting forward science uh, importantly, as its own kind of wayfaring, and um, and some some interesting things about the imagination as well. But not to rehearse all of that. But um, could you say something about your understanding of the imagination for science and for religion, and this contrast between attentiveness and negligence, which struck me as mm. as important. So mm. yeah, just anything in and around those. And that's ideas. what I'm working on now because I'm just putting together a a collection of essays to make a book which will be called Imagining for Real, which will include the dragons piece in it, because colleagues would rightly say, well, okay, you've, you've said a lot about perception, but where does imagination fit in to what you're saying? And I had to say, well, I don't really know because I haven't worked that one out yet. So I've been, I'm trying to, to figure out where to go with imagination. And, and there are some things I'm already certain about where, where I, I think imagination definitely is not, or I don't want imagination to mean X. And by X, therefore, I mean um, some form of, of representation of something that isn't present. Part of the difficulty is that we've inherited this word imagination. Um, it has a history. It's not necessarily the best word for what I think I want to talk about. Um, but we're kind of stuck with it. And the, and the reason why it's not the best word is because it has this word image inside it. And so when you talk about imagination, you immediately think, oh, well, there must be an image. And then you say image of what? Oh, it must be an image of something that is not immediately present. You're imagining it, so it's not something you perceive. It must be something that in the past or the future or something fictional or whatever it might be. And, and so we end up with this division between the real world, whatever it is, and an imaginary world. So that so we, we have this received understanding that 
imaginary, whatever is imaginary, whatever is imagined, is somehow not real. And that is the problem I want to get over, because the, because the first thing I want to be able to show is why we need to get beyond that distinction to get a rich understanding of what imagination might be, then we have to get beyond any kind of distinction between fact and fiction, um, or fact and fantasy, or reality and imagination in that sense. So, so the question is then, how can we understand imagination in a way that goes beyond the representation of what is not there? And particularly for me, because I'm being worried about perception, the question is how how we can bring perception and imagination together. How can we how can we actually think of perception as part of well well perception and imagination really as being being two sides of the same coin, so that you can't really have one without the other. And the way I'm thinking about it at the moment is to suppose that. Suppose that a, let's say it's a human being. Forget about non-humans for a while. So we've got a human being, and and um, they're they're stretched. It seems like we're always stretched between a perceptual engagement with the environment that is, to some extent, holding us back, that is rooting us, tying us down, and an imagination that is always pulling us forward. And the best way I could think about it is is to imagine a, a painter or a composer, or actually I've, I've read um, architects also write about this, that, and, and I know from my own experience as a writer. Well, let, let's, let's take my own experience as a writer. Writing is very, very stressful, and I'm sure you, you know this, um, and, the, what, and you think, what is the most stressful part of it? And the most stressful part is the constant thought, the constant anxiety, that an idea you had, or that just a flash, or something you that you is still so much of a flash that you couldn't even put words to it, you couldn't even fix it exactly. That this flash is going to go off into the distance, and you'll lose it. It's like that that amazing dream you had, and we've woken it up, and it's all gone. And 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 you're continually worried that imagination will fly off into the distance before you can catch it because it takes so long and it's such a slow and labored process to get things down. The writer is constantly in this tension. His mind is flying off and his pen is struggling to catch up. It's the same if you're composing a piece of music. You think, how on earth? You know, it takes hours to notate a bit of music that in performance might last only a minute, and somehow you have to hold it whilst you get all this stuff down, but your musical mind is shooting off already. Um, I mean, novelists say the same thing. You know, they're trying to write, their characters keep running away with them, and it's all they can do to catch them before they, they, they lose them. And, and so I, I, I see... That's what I think of as the tension between imagination and perception. And, and it's not that they're two different things, but one is, one is caught as a being in that tension between a tumbling off into the, into the unknown and a grounding in the materiality of the world. You, you have to have that grounding if you're going to do anything at all. And then it occurred to me that actually the model for this, and perhaps what does make 
human beings different is the simple act of walking. Because when you take a step, actually, as many people have pointed out, that there's a moment of extraordinary dynamic instability. You lift one foot from the ground, swing it forward, and lean into the step. And unless that foot soon gets a grip on the ground surface, you're going to fall forward. So it's like it's like actually putting yourself at risk and saying, "What well, I'm going to uh, into an unknown that you have no idea." It's it's a you're putting yourself at risk, um, and then you put down your foot, and and because you're already perfectly skilled at walking, down it goes, and you regain your equilibrium again for a moment, and then you do the same thing again and again and again, and that's exactly the tension between the the imagination, which sort of sets you free to fall and perception, which is where your skills um, mastery on the other hand. It's a book, The Life of Lines, where I've I've written about this in terms of the alternation between mastery and submission, and and arguing that, that, that submission comes first and mastery afterwards, and imagination is about submission. And I was reading another work just recently, and so it's actually this theorist was saying, well, we, we could use the word adventure for this, because that adventure literally means exposure to what is about to happen, but we don't know what it is. I mean, that's literally what it means. And, and I think I want to try and find a way of talking about imagination, which refers to that. And the key thing then is that you can't, when you're imagining something, you can't tell anybody else exactly what it is. You can't you can't formulate it in a con- once you've formulated the thing in concepts in representations. Well, that's imagination over. You've already got it. The imagination is the part which is always thinking beyond thought. It's always um, over over spilling uh, where we are, and that's why I got so much inspiration from from John Dewey. Um, writing about the relationship between undergoing, doing and undergoing, and how the undergoing always overspills the doing in any experience. Is that because we're just, we're so subject to the physical forces of the world um, that there's always more happening to us than than we're doing to anything else? No, it's not not that. It's it's just that it's something to do with the, the, actually with with time. Um, the fact that we don't experience life as a series of disconnected episodes in which I did this, then I did that, then I did that, then I did that. But but everything we do is, at the same time, the maturation of what we did before and the preparation for what we're doing next. So that in every doing is, is enfolded the experience of what came before them and, and, and itself gives rise to what's coming after. Um, so it's a continuous, um, it's not a succession of novelties, but a continuous renewal, a continuous birth. And if, if it wasn't for that, you know, we, we wouldn't, I mean, life would be impossible. <laughs> the, the, simply to say we're living is to say that that continuity is there. And you can only have that continuity because the undergoing always exceeds the doing. That idea of generativity or creation brings to mind uh, 
Bergson again, right? Or mm. Who writes it's, of, it's, it's straight out of Bergson. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Bergson, Whitehead, and Dewey, those those three together, but sort of land, I sort of try, <laughs> I'm moving in the triangle um, charted out by by those three, and I have been for, for ages. There's something in, in what you were talking about there about the kind of, uh, you know, time unfolding, and that, um, you know, we can talk of that as kind of narrative time that, that we're making sense of ourselves in the world through that. Um, uh, I mean, you've written about the, um, you know, when you talked about the difference between materials and materiality and the mm. you know, materiality is such a sort of, uh, my understanding of what you were saying there was it's such a sort of vague idea. Yeah. Mm. Tell me the actual story of a material. Um, yeah. And um, what, what do you think the relationship bet is between the kind of human imagination uh, where we're trying to kind of do this stepping between our skilled practice and then the sort of leap into the unknown and then the familiar again and as you've described that and the kind of the story of the materials that we uh that we're encountering all the time you know you mm. held up the glass earlier and I've got a wooden table here and mm. here's my laptop made from a whole load of materials that have come from all over the world um mm. when, when I try and think all those things together I sort of sometimes feel like I'm getting lost in a story with so many characters uh, mm -hmm. and so many subjects. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I feel like I need to think holistically like that to have a, a true narrative of the world. Do, do you have any? I think that, yeah, I mean, the thing about materials is that they carry on, they have lives. So they, they whenever you, if you shift the discourse from talking about objects to talking about materials, with objects, they somehow finished, they're done. This is what it is. Um, but as soon as you say, no, no, actually, this is some materials, then, then they have lives, they have histories, um, they have potentials to become something else than they are at the moment. Uh, so, um, you know, if, you, if you've got a wooden table there, you say, okay, it's a table, that's an object, but no, it's actually it's wood. And so you could, with that wood, it could, it could become a chair, it could be, become a cupboard, you could, or a bookcase. So if but as soon as you, you, you move from the materiality of objects to the properties of materials, then you move from the, the finality of ends to the potentials of becoming. And, and that then means that you can imagine with materials, I mean, because the imagination can then get caught up with the story of the materials that the imagination is with. And I, mean, I think a lot of art is really doing that kind of imaginative work for us or encouraging it, us to do it ourselves. And But the problem you've mentioned there is that it gets a bit difficult because there are so many stories. And this is, a, this is an issue which I, I really, I don't think I've really resolved to my satisfaction. I mean, the, the problem with the mesh work is that there's too many lines in it. Uh, and after a while you get completely lost and you don't know I, I've used sometimes the image of the rope that um, that a rope you could say okay let's make pretend that the rope is one line but actually this rope is made of lots of fibers and each fiber is made of lots of fibers and you can you can go up and you can go go down and and um, so the number of lines you're dealing with depends on it's a, it's a kind of scalar thing but even then the idea of tracing or tracking a line like a path 
assumes that you can actually tell one line apart from another if you really want to follow it. So if you if you imagine you've got a, a, a knotted tangle of threads, you've got you've got your fisherman, you've got your nets all tangled up, and you're trying to untangle them. Um, it's a job, but in principle, at least you know that if you follow this particular thread, it's not going to become one of the others. I mean, they they are actually in principle separable. And the difficulty is that in ordinary life, this is not the case. And this is where chemistry comes in. If you're making a cake and you have flour and butter and, uh, and sugar uh, and maybe some other ingredients as well, and, and they're materials, and in the kitchen, they're in separate places. You can, and then you, you mix them all together. You put them in a, a mixing bowl. You put them in, you mix them all up. You put it in the oven. And now what comes out at the other end is a cake. It's not flour. It's not sugar. It's not butter. It's something else altogether. So I cannot, I'm unable to describe cake making with a meshwork metaphor. I can't do it with a network metaphor either. Um, it breaks down that point. I'm not quite sure how to deal with this, but that's really the problem that you're getting at. You mentioned yes. uh, Karen Barad earlier, and um, you know that makes me think of her notion of uh, interaction. Interaction, yeah. And that the, you know, these, are, these things are not um, objects as such, but a phenomenon. Mm. Uh, and um, they're sort of co-produced through this interaction. I mean, do you do you work with uh, Barad in that with that concept? What's yes, except that I, I'm, I'm, the thing with her is um, that I'm sort of generally with what she's saying. I don't, I don't have a great objection to it, but I think she gets the wrong words, and 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 um, and her writing is is unnecessarily tangled, and I don't like interaction. And the word I've been trying to use and propagate and get other people to take on if they will instead is correspondence which i think is very very much better and and the the reason i don't like interaction i mean i get the point and it's not a new point it's not as though karen barrett's invented this i mean anthropologists have been saying this for ages that relations are not between like when we talk about interaction they're not between uh, this a and this b both A and B existing independently, and then they have some sort of relationship with one another, but actually it's the relationship that actually creates the things at either end of it. I mean, that's old hat in anthropology, and, and, and you get a bit fed up with Karen Barad and everybody else pretending it's something something they've just dreamt up. It's been around, uh, it's been around for, for, for at least 40 years in anthropology, this idea that, um, that things are constituted by their relations. Um, but the trouble with interaction it takes a relationship between two things here and turns it inside like that. It folds it in. So in other words, it, it makes a kind of 180 degree shift. I think we need to make a 90 degree shift. That's to say, instead of talking about intra instead of inter, which is simply a folding inside, we need to think of things as going along together in parallel. To give an example, Imagine what happens when two people walk side by side along the street together. Many people, we, we did work on this, and many people said this is the most sociable sort of thing they can do, to be walking side by side down a street. It's very sociable because you're sharing the same view ahead. 
And you might not be looking directly at the other person's face, but you can still hold a conversation and just tip it a little bit in that direction and, and using peripheral vision to, to coordinate your movements and so on. It's a very sociable thing. And suppose then that these two companions walking down the street suddenly uh, have a row, they have an argument, and they, they've been going this way, and then they turn, suddenly turn around and face one another directly and say, hey, and they start having an altercation. And they can't move anymore because if they move, they're going to bump into one another. They can't, they can't carry on. So that's a 90 degree shift. I want to shift the other way so that whether we're talking about inter or intra, it's always going like this. Whereas I want to go along in that way. Um, and, and with correspondence, <clears throat> I want to get the idea of things going along together and answering to one another as they go. And I think really that that's what Barad is trying to talk about, but she's got the wrong word. And interaction just doesn't do it for me because intra means you've got to have something that it's something bounded that it's already been put inside when there's no such thing. It's a, it, it's a matter of going along together, not of interacting inside. So I've avoided interaction as a term. I don't really like it and, and, and tried to use correspondence instead. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit the same as, as Haraway's responsibility, but I got annoyed with Haraway too, because actually the, the notion of responsibility, um, she didn't invent that either. It was invented by John Cage way back um, in the late 1940s, I think. Uh, and he was using it in a musical context. But anyway, that's another thing. I think you're onto something there with uh, Barad's language. But I also suspect, I, I have the suspicion that she would not necessarily disagree with you if she were here no, right she now. Wouldn't. I, 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 I think we're, we're, we would be largely on the same page. Yeah, yeah. because it's, uh, it's a difference just of, of, um, of style and presentation. Yeah, that's right. And, and of audience as well, right? Because I feel yeah. like she's, her, her audience is, is very different from yours and she's aware of yes. that. Hmm. You talked about anthropology, uh, a couple of times in there, which is interesting because you're primarily known as, a, I'm as an anthropologist. <laughs> you're an anthropologist, but we haven't really talked. I mean, we've talked about things that are certainly relevant to anthropology, um, but not anthropology as such. And this has not really been a, uh, a focus of mine, frankly, or even an interest until very recently, but I'm becoming more curious about, uh, about anthropology because of the way, uh, especially some of the, the new anthropology, like your work, Eduardo Cohn, uh, Eduardo Veras de Castro and so on. It's it's not only very interesting, but as as someone who's been been educated in the West, it's made me aware of how from from an early age I I've been indoctrinated into the world of royal science, as Deleuze might call it. Yeah, and, yeah, royal and, science, and of how how provincial and uh, colonized my own thinking has been as a result of that and you know how how that sort of default uh framing of the world that's uh that we sort of carry carry forward is tied in with this history of uh of imperialism and the kind of well frankly racism that's that's baked into that and there's this sense of supremacy epistemic supremacy and which becomes a moral kind of moral supremacy that we uh pick up and so, so that's like my real interest right now in uh, the field of anthropology and then learning that there are sort of radically different ways of understanding and inhabiting the world. So yeah, you're just, I mean, you're welcome to 
comment on any of that, but I guess my question would be, I guess it's sort of a general question, but what do you take or what do you understand the task of anthropology uh, mm. to be these okay. days? Because, because yeah. in the old, in the old, the 19th century is a very different scene, correct? Yeah. yeah. And, and um, I don't know anymore whether I'm, I mean, I'm supposed to be an anthropologist, but I've given up worrying whether what I'm doing is anthropology anymore. And, and, and and I, I often have the feeling that anthropology has gone one way and I've gone another, so that I can't really speak for anthropology. But I did write a little book meant for a general readership called Anthropology, Why It Matters, a very short book, which is a sort of manifesto for what I think anthropology ought to be. My short definition of anthropology is that it's philosophy with the people in. Um, so the, the questions we're asking are basically philosophical questions about life and existence and meaning and all this stuff. Um, only we're addressing them not through engagements with the canon, but through engagements with people whom we encounter in all sorts of different situations, places, parts of the world in our fieldwork. Um, and it's out of those engagements that we're learning and developing some sort of knowledge or wisdom. That's the short definition. The long definition is that anthropology is a generous, open-ended, comparative, yet critical inquiry into the conditions of existence for human beings and others in the one world we all inhabit. And there's quite a lot packed into that, but, um, but it's, Anthropology is generous in the sense that we listen to what other people are telling us and are prepared to learn from it. We're not just um, analyzing other people, collecting data on them, we're actually listening to them. It's um, comparative in that it recognizes that for any one way of being, other ways of being are possible. It's open-ended in the sense that they're not looking to final solutions, but for ways to keeping, keep on going. And it's critical because we can't be content with the way the world is as, it, as it's currently constituted. So, um, so it's all those things. But most fundamentally of all, for me, anthropology is about taking others seriously. In other words, we, and, and that's why I've, I've, I've had a long campaign in my discipline to try and say that it's not the same thing as ethnography. It's not simply about describing, analyzing, and under, understanding the lives of other people. It's a perfectly respectable thing to do, but that's not what anthropology is. Anthropology is rather a, an attempt to address the question, how should we live? How can we find a way to live now and sustainably into the future? And that is the most fundamental question we all got at the moment. And we have to, and, and all, all of our lives are devoted to trying to find ways to answer it. We're never going to find a final answer, heaven forbid, but we, but, but we have to continue to work on it. And what anthropology does that no other discipline does is that it is prepared to learn from people everywhere, anywhere, whatever their walks of life, wherever they live, whatever they do, that it starts from the presumption that these people could have something from which we could learn in helping us collectively to try and answer this question. And the point about anthropology is to bring all these people who are otherwise never consulted or listened to at all, or simply researched upon, to bring these people into the conversation. And 
that doesn't mean turning them into exotic others. It doesn't mean othering people. I, I don't like it. means bringing them in to a conversation we're all having about how to live. And given the crisis that we're in at the moment, this just seems to me like common sense. I mean, it seems utterly ridiculous for the academy not to listen to all this wisdom. We have all these people around the world, so much wisdom, so much experience, that we simply cannot afford to ignore it. And yet, for the most part, that is what the academy is doing. And the anthropology is the one discipline that is actually prepared to listen to what other people are saying and take what they're saying seriously, not just as data to analyze, but as, as ideas to engage with. You might not agree with them. You might think people are completely wrong or quite, you know, quite dangerously wrong. You might find their, their ideas objectionable, but that doesn't mean that you might learn something from conversing with them. And I think that's what anthropology is about. I think probably the majority of my colleagues would disagree with that and still think that anthropology is basically an ethnographic project, which is different. My field is, yeah, is translation studies. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, uh, a lot of translation studies is obviously concerned with interlingual translation, but in increasingly it's picking up that kind of question of, um, of how to... Uh, uh, so an example would be the um, translation projects currently to look at how uh, indigenous communities deal with ecological crises or have done so for a long time um, and how that can be translated into, uh, say, public policy um, hmm. uh, where local governments are trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, actually implement changes. There's a real cultural block between uh, local government institutions being able to listen and deal with uh, indigenous communities oftentimes because of in many places that comes with its own kind of colonial history. Of um, course. Uh, I mean, from your point of view, do you see anthropology, you know, is, it, is anthropology in, in the way you've articulated it, is this something that should be taught kind of, you know, as a, a kind of compulsory subject to all school children? Uh, mm. Should every government official be trained in this? Like, is this a kind of cultural... We've practice? had lots of debates about this, and there was an attempt to introduce an anthropology A-level which didn't succeed in the end or got scrapped. And in, here in Scotland to try and introduce anthropology into the Scottish hires so that kids are getting it at age 16 to 18. It's very difficult because anthropology is it's really a, a, an attitude. It's a frame of mind rather than a defined body of knowledge. So it's something you, you can inculcate. Where anthropology has been tried out, say, at, at, at high school level, uh, it's tended to be packaged in a way that you know, it makes my hair stand on end. I mean, it's 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 really out of date. It's sort of textbooky. I mean, one of the things that, that all my colleagues say is, and I would say myself too, is if they never teach from textbooks, because anthropology just cannot be textbookized. It can't be put into a body of authoritative knowledge to say, here you are, here's the anthropological truth, because that flies in the face of what anthropology is setting out to do. Um, 
which is in a sense to unwrap all that stuff and get people to ask questions where otherwise they think they might know. So, so the last thing anthropology wants to do is to provide kids with ready-made answers to things. Yet as soon as you put anthropology in as a school subject on the curriculum, you know, you have to have a textbook and you have to say to the kids, this is how it is. So they get completely the wrong idea of what the whole thing is about. So that I've been trying to put the case recently that anthropology is itself constitutionally a practice of education in itself. Um, it's not about ethnography, it's about education, and it's, and it's putting forward a particular notion of what education might be, which in many ways is contrary to what the mainstream paradigm of teaching and learning is. Um, what's interesting there is that there are a number of people writing in the field of art, art practice, not art history, but art practice, who are putting forward exactly the same argument for art as a form of educational practice. And I think actually they, that's where art and anthropology have so much in common that they become almost the same thing, where art and anthropology really meet. They don't meet around ethnography. They meet around this idea of, of education as a kind of literally a leading out into the world in which things can be shown to you so that they can be brought into your presence so they can think about them. And that's that's what art does. And I think that's also what anthropology does. But that 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 really complicates the idea of simply sort of introducing anthropology as an extra school subject. It, it It's more like we want to try and turn around the whole way in which teaching in school is done. The connection that you make there between art and anthropology as a kind of uh, not only a method, but a sort of disposition in a way, uh, yeah. and, and also as a as a sort of as a con as a constructive mode of production, mm. I mm. think is is really resonates with the way that I think Matt and I think of theology, which is an interest of ours, as also a, a, a mode of production. Yeah, yeah, I think so, and and there are a lot of. Um, I've, I suddenly found myself sort of drifting I mean, in that Dragon's paper, for example, I, I found myself mm -hmm, mm -hmm. drifting into theology, which was the very last thing I ever expected to happen. And I found a lot of interest. I found people thinking about the same sorts of same sorts of issues because religion, too, in, in, it is, is something about what goes by the name of religion is a certain way of knowing. I've called it knowing from the inside. Um, from the inside of being, which I think is something that I, I, we need to inculcate in our educational practice. Yeah, well, I think that's a perfect way to close off and tie a bow on this conversation. We've been going for about 90 minutes and we started with the question yeah, I of- say, I hope we, we can finish soon, soon my yeah, stuff at that. Yeah, I, can, I, I, I sort of picked up on that, but uh, we started with the question of education. So it seemed like a, a good place to, to leave mm -hmm. off. Um, you don't have your cello nearby, do you? <laughs> it's downstairs. I'm upstairs. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> maybe an inappropriate request, but I would love to hear you, hear you play the cello sometime because I've heard you talk about it several times, and yeah. I'm just like, ah, oh, is, is he any good? I wonder. Well, he's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I decided at one stage that it was much more fun being a a really good amateur 
than being a second-rate professional. I mean, it, it, the life as a, you know, I'm not that brilliant, and 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 um, mm-hmm. I couldn't have a career as a soloist. So you should imagine that you you end up stuck at the back desk of some godforsaken orchestra trying to make a living and it would be mm-hmm. really soul-destroying. But but um, just playing the cello for the love of it, mm-hmm. um, you can get all the yeah, it's very fulfilling. Absolutely. No, as a, as a um, former um, aspiring percussionist, um, mm. uh, I, I totally relate to what you're saying. There, at one point I made the decision, this is not what I want to do professionally, but I will still you know, continue, mm. continue to play. And mm. although there aren't too many opportunities this day, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, I uh, really appreciated this conversation. It was a real joy, honestly, and um, lots to consider and we appreciate your time and it was a real pleasure i've enjoyed it too okay we finished we're done, then, we're done. <laughs> okay well i'll sign off then and uh, nice talking to you okay yeah. bye thanks, huh? thanks Tim. bye yeah. bye take care All right, thanks to Tim. Maybe next time we can convince him to share his cello skills with us. That'd be cool. Take a look at the show notes where you'll find some links to some of his work. Thanks to Matt Valor for jumping in. I'll link to his stuff as well. Next up, I believe, is Eric Aldieri. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm probably making it sound more exotic than it is. Uh, if I'm remembering right, he's a he's a grad student over at DePaul University, and some of you may uh, know him from the PTR podcast. Anyway, I think that's it. Uh, outro music, graphic, and sound design by Matt Baker. And we'll see you next time.